The Red 78. Once we were back, we were back for a period. That was of time. when the uh, televisions were in black and white, Quinn. Yeah, but that's right. Was, yeah, uh, yeah. You had big buttons <laughs> and no remote. Available every Wednesday. Don't miss a moment of action. Subscribe to the Rugby Channel on the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications now. The Koi Gig Pod on OTB Sports in association with Cadbury. A player and a half deserves a glass and a half of support. Lily Ag scores one of the most important goals they have ever scored. What a moment for the Republic of Ireland. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Koi Gig Podcast. I'm Kathleen McNamee and I'm joined by two all-round women's football aficionados, Karen Duggan and Emma Byrne. How are you both doing? Very well, thank you Kathleen. Very good, very good. And you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, Karen never used to ask me how I was doing. That's all about me, I don't know. You're selfish. (laughs) Always has been, Kathleen, always has been. Emma, you're just a better person than me, all around. (laughs) Perfect. Yes. Um, The Koi Gig Pod and OTB Sports is an association with Cabri FC, official Slack partner to the Republic of Ireland women's national team. Now, as there's no WSL this week, we decided that we were going to take a bit of a deeper dive into a topic that we have mentioned a few times over the course of the show. And this week, we are delighted to welcome sports psychology practitioner and UEFA qualified coach David McHugh to the show. David's PhD research examined talent development in Irish football and the psychological characteristics of elite footballers. He has written on several topics, including how a sports psychologist can help players transition from junior to senior levels. Um, We are very happy to have you on the show today, David, so we can pick your brains and no two better women to pick your brains than Emma and Karen, I have to say. So I hope you're ready for it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Looking forward um, to all things football. Yeah, I suppose just to get a bit of background about yourself, how did you, like, were you a player yourself and that you became interested in the sports psychologist side of it or did it kind of, which one came first? Yeah, so I suppose I was a player myself, a um, young player playing with Athlone Town Youths at the time and I was unfortunate enough to break my leg. So there was a whole load of psychological challenges with that. So that was, I suppose, me initially thinking about psychology, but then moving on beyond that, um, I was always interested in, well, why did I have a good experience with some coaches and why I didn't with others? And then I could see the impact that maybe psychology played in the coaching process. So I was interested in all of that. But then looking at my own journey as well, I wanted to learn more about myself as an athlete and ultimately to help other people um, along their journey, particularly within that talent development phase where I think in Ireland maybe there may not be enough or there certainly wasn't enough support. I know it's improving um, all the time. So I just want to, I suppose, at the moment, support players in that journey and around the experiences that I had and maybe help coaches as well, help ultimately players with their own experiences and journey as well. And when you broke your leg that time, what age were you at that stage? So I was 16 at the time. Okay. Suppose- um, that's, that's a really important age, isn't it, as well? Yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, sport means everything at 16 years of age. I know it did to me. And then to be, actually didn't play for 12 months at the time. So um, there's a whole host of challenges with that. When you invest so much into one part of yourself at the expense of everything else, um, you experience a whole host of challenges. And I know me as a sports psychologist, it's now looking back, I can help players in those experiences because I can empathize a little bit with it. But at the time as well, it can be can be really challenging for players. And I think it takes nearly a whole club approach 
to help players during during those difficult moments. Yeah, and at 16, were you kind of attuned to that? Because it wouldn't be the usual thing that a 16-year-old lad would feel comfortable talking about how they were feeling. Did you do it or did you just learn from that experience that you should have spoken to someone? Yeah, for, for me, it was I was lucky at a very supportive mum. Now, she didn't know anything about football, but she knew a lot about parenting. So she was always there, but she would have been the only person that would have been really open to speaking with Um. I suppose at that time, you you're injured. You're not involved with the team. Um, you're not going down the train. You're not going down to matches. So you don't have that team support. So you're relying a lot on your parents. But I think the game has moved on. And at the time, at 16 years of age, I certainly didn't know what a sports psychologist was. I didn't probably learn that for another five six years. Um. So now, I think psychology, and I know from my experiences of being a sports psychologist, I get a lot of. Um, contacts from parents um, child is injured they're returning from, returning from injury particularly ACL injuries and the psychological challenges with that so I think young people nowadays they're probably more open to speaking about their mental health because they're learning about it in school I don't think I learned a huge amount about mental health in school so I think the climate has changed I think psychologists have been more normalised outside of sport and it's certainly transferring into sport but it can definitely be improved as well. And what would you say the main thing you come across with people that are coming to you with? Like, is it people who have gone through injuries that maybe you're leaving them on the sidelines for 12 months or longer? Or is it people who might have thought they were going to reach a certain level of whether it's semi-pro or professionalism or maybe not even that high and just haven't hit it and aren't coping with it? Or are there other things that people are coming to you with? I think initially... uh, a lot of athletes come when there's a problem and um, that's only natural. And that's what I'd probably call reactive sports psychology. It's there's a problem. Can you fix it? And um, there's probably a better approach in terms of proactive sports psychology, but I think you need to be embedded within the club or the environment to really do that type of work. And um, I suppose what a lot of the time when an athlete will come to a sports psychologist, one of the first things they'll probably say is I'm lacking confidence. And, um, and when you delve a little bit more, it's not just confidence. There's a lot more going on. And they'll probably initially want help in terms of mental skills. I want to improve my performance. But if they don't have the whole well-being piece in place, they're not looking after themselves. Well, then there's really no point in working on mental skills. Because if we can get their well-being right, their performance will improve anyway. So a lot of the time it's, yeah, can you help me with mental skills? But when you explore a little bit more, they can be doing a lot more in terms of their overall well-being, which will ultimately help their performance. Things like how they manage their time. Are they spending enough time with their friends outside of sport? Um, are they actually investing in um, developing a life for themselves after sport as well, which is really important. So there be somebody yeah. here. Yeah, I totally agree with that, David. And I've been harping on about that for a long time about getting an education. But actually, just listening to you now, it's just focusing on something else, really, just because for your own mental health, it can't be all just about football. But there's a question I wanted to ask you, David, and it's about coaching because you have your A license, which I was very interested in. Um, When I was doing my badges, I didn't feel there was enough about 
being a psychologist, because realistically, as a coach, you should be tuned into the mental health and the psychology of it. And I didn't think there was enough in the badges about that. Um, what's your opinion on that? From going through the the qualification, yeah, I, I'd agree with that from my own reflections and speaking with other coaches. I know in the last course I did, there was coaches speaking, well, we didn't do enough on on psychology. Um, so, yeah, being a coach, I and gone through the, the badges. Yeah, I think there can be more done. Um, it's tricky because I think some coaches think they can be a psychologist as well and that they should do the psychology. But I always go back to a coach when they say that and highlight that the difference between a psychologist and a coach is with a psychologist, there's confidentiality. Um, that whatever said between the, the athlete and psychologist can't go outside that boundary unless there's real welfare issues and needs to be referred to somebody else or just a threat to harm to that person. Then the psychologist has to um, notify a body to help that person get help. With a coach, they can't offer that. Because if an athlete comes to a coach and says, oh, I'm not feeling 100% at the moment, well, then a coach has to make a decision between two players. And they're going to pick the player that they feel there's less risk with because their job is dependent on performance and winning games. So, yeah, coaches need to understand about psychology. They don't need to be experts. There are areas linked to mental skills they can certainly benefit learning from. They can really benefit from learning about what is mental health because a coach has a big impact on a player's mental health in terms of the way they even just have a conversation. Um, so, yeah, there's a huge amount, I think, for coaches to upskill. I think if you were looking at the Premier League at the moment, Graham Potter, he, he's not a psychologist, but he upskilled himself in the area, area and I could be corrected on this, um, social intelligence. I think he did a course on that. And it's not psychology, it's an area of psychology. But I'm sure he's benefited in his coaching career from upskilling in that area. And I suppose coaches, other areas, um, they could benefit from what we, yeah, so how groups interact mental skills, mental health, how people learn skills. Um, all areas a coach could definitely benefit from upskill, upskilling in. And on that kind of social element, have you kind of seen a difference through age groups? Like are younger people more susceptible to, I don't know, having issues or being more easily offended or just managing social situations differently to, say, older age groups? Or have they just never spoken about it? and gone up to that senior level. So I haven't come to you. Yeah. For, from what I'm seeing is there's a change and I do some work in academy environments and then I do some work one-on-one um, -on -one, do work with individual teams within a, a club. So it varies. But one thing I have noticed is if you're working in an academy environment, no matter what the sport for over a period of three or four years, let's say, You've probably worked with the under 14s for four years, the under 13s for four years. And then by the time they get to 18, psychology has been embedded within the environment. So you'll see a real change in the environment after that four year period um, because it just becomes normalized. And if there's no sports psychologist at senior level, the players will start asking, why don't we have one? We've had it in the academy. Why don't we have it at senior level? So it it can change over time. Um, and then the players, because they've had it at a young age to become more open to it, 
they'll talk about their mental health, they'll speak with their coaches, they'll look for that support because it's been normalized. But it does take does take time. It can be harder going in at senior level if they've never had a sports psychologist before. Because the coach doesn't know how to work with sports psychologists, but then the athlete doesn't really know what they can get from it. And it can often take 12 months for people to really learn what their actual role of a sports psychologist is. I think for me, the way I like to explain it to people is there's a mental health spectrum. We all have mental health. I think sometimes everybody hears the term mental health and just thinks mental illness, but no, everybody has mental health. Some people are flourishing. Some people are languishing. Some people have a mental um, illness that they need treatment for, Um, but it's a spectrum. And the job of a sports psychologist is to work with everybody on the spectrum and to give people evidence and a reason why an approach will work. And the most important part is then support them in implementing that approach. So it's evidence-based, but we're working ultimately to help people flourish in a sporting context. That's performance, but it also links to their overall well-being as well. And David, when you're working say within academy groups or with the younger age groups, do you see much of a difference in the issues that say younger boys are coming to you with compared to younger women? Because obviously we, this is a women's football podcast. That's what we talk about. We talk about grassroots girls football all the time. Is there anything in particular that you've noticed that kind of stands out from that side? What I would say is lads will take what you've told them that that's right because you're seen as an expert or the person in charge. But what I found is in girls' academy environments and even senior women's environments, they will ask more questions. You will you will really really need to understand what you're delivering to them because they'll want to know the reasons why and get into those conversations. Um, and they may not, let's say, speak about in front of a group, but if you can get them in smaller groups to identify things like a couple of things that would jump out would be the relationship with the coach. And particularly if it's a male coach in a, in a women's environment, um, I find that can bring um, tension that the coach doesn't take on board the player's opinion. Um, and then that will be a real tension within the overall environment. Uh, the player doesn't feel comfortable going to the coach. Um, the coaches come to sports psychologists, maybe giving out about that player, but they're not really developing that relationship because ultimately it needs to be, you need to meet to meet, meet the needs of the athlete. Um, and sometimes there can be real tension there. So that'd be one area that I think it'd be different between the, the male and female game. Mm. And it's, interesting that you say that there because one of the reasons that we wanted to talk to someone like yourself was because there was a report in the eye paper a couple of weeks ago about the manchester city women's academy and the fact that they had had several complaints separately from parents about um how girls were treated particularly around the time that they were released from the club and that they weren't given enough support and i know it's maybe in a different context, but I know you've written before about in the GA, like that transition from junior to senior and the supports that are needed. Do you think from your, like, have you seen much of the setup that there is say within women's and girls academies when it does come to being released? Because that seems to be something in particular that comes up a lot. And I suppose, especially with women's football still 
not at the level that men's are. There's probably less supports in general, I would think, to pro- quite dependent on where you are too. Yeah, I think the the whole area of release, there's probably an education program that needs to happen while they're in the academy. Support during the release process, but then most importantly, support afterwards. Now, a couple of examples of good practice that I know of within the WSL would be, um, I know in a previous role, I had somebody come in as a guest lecture and they spoke with a group of students on the program they developed um, within a WSL academy for the, I think it was the 17s into the 21s. Um, and they were looking at how they can manage a dual career. So upskilling the, the players in that dual career space to help them transition into the first team, but also away from the academy environment and the first team environment because the majority will not get into the first team environment. That's just the nature of football. There's limited spaces for those players to make the step up. So we have to be preparing them in a different way. And I know there are a number of dual career programs within the WSL academies, particularly for when they leave the, the, the I think it's, is it the A-levels or the secondary school equivalent? A-levels, yeah. A-levels, yeah. So there are dual career programs in place. Um, the actual release process, I don't have a huge amount of detail on, but I suppose one area that I, I sat in a presentation from somebody I did my master's where she's working with um, WSL club, and they've set up a mental health referral network within the club. Um, it's something I haven't come across in Ireland. I don't know if other clubs are doing it in the well, W. We had something like that, David, at Arsenal. And when when we finished at Arsenal, we were referred onto something like this. And for me, it didn't help because I was talking to somebody who who hadn't got a clue about football. They'd no idea about football. It was... It was like as if I was teaching them some things, which is something I definitely didn't need at that time. So I just like, no, don't worry about it. See ya. <laughs> didn't answer their calls again. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's- so I think it's really important like to not have the knowledge of football, know the process. And for me, that's something they didn't have. I don't know. It might have changed since then. Yeah. I think there are more. So a psychologist is dealing mainly with performance. Um, and the well-being within the sporting context. And a sports psychologist can work with an athlete around the retirement process from sport because that's such an important area. There are some elements in that process where an athlete will have real difficulties that may need specialist support from a clinical psychologist. I think you highlighted it there. The difficulty then is, does that person that sports psychologist has referred to, do they have the understanding of the sport or sport in general? to understand, I suppose, the culture, the challenges of retirement from sport. Um, and that's the real difficulty. And that's why if it can be kept within the club and bring in a specialist that the club knows, understands the sport, that's where the whole experience can be tightened up and you'll get better engagement with those support services as a result. Um, it's difficult though, isn't it? Because is it the club's responsibility to do that? Or is it a federation, maybe you didn't play for a national team. Maybe you only played for the club for two years. And because I don't know anybody that's had a follow-up call after three or four years. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's interesting. I had a conversation with um, uh, Dr. Liam Hennessy in Satanta College today. And 
it was linked to the area of retirement from sport and he just brought up the question. Um, so you've got a duty of care when you're in the sport, but when does the duty of care stop? And I don't have an answer to that, but it's a brilliant yeah. question for organizations to think about because the what happens in the sporting environment has ramifications for years after, for the rest of your life. So when does it stop? I don't have the answer, but I think it's a great question for organizations to probably think about i think it probably depends as well like if you're a premier league player and you're earning a certain amount of money and you can probably sustain yourself in a very different way than if you play in say the women's national league in over in ireland you know and i think what emma said is probably right there to a certain extent i think a lot of this stuff should really fall on federations more so than individual clubs or at least they should be putting the the basics in practice because whether you play for the national team or not, if you pay within the national league or if you represent your national federation in some capacity, I feel like they probably owe you a bit more than a club with that you could only spend two years with, or you could only spend a year with depending, I don't know, Karen, how you might feel about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's so final. I don't know, Emma, you probably had a similar experience. I mean, I retired there was a tweet saying I retired and that was kind of the last interaction I would have had with the Federation. And I That's because they think you're going to come back. Karen. No, it's definitely <laughs> not. Um, but I definitely am probably someone who could have done with some follow-up. What I did was I was like, Oh God, I don't have international football now. I need to do something else. And I threw myself into a postcard that I didn't have time for because I was still playing national league and ended up putting myself under more pressure and probably did have a detrimental effect to my mental health and I didn't relate it to soccer. I was just like, Oh, I overextended myself, but it was because I didn't really have a plan for what I would do when I wasn't an international soccer player, when I didn't have that label. And I was just like basically playing a hobby again. So there was no transition there. And definitely something I think would be good for the federation to have in a certain extent. Again, you wouldn't expect it on the women's national league front because we're only making steps to, you know, have like more coaching and more training. Like that's far along off. But um, I do think that that's something that would be very beneficial. Bennett, Emma, I don't know what your experience was. No, I just think it's a shame we're talking about money here when it comes to mental health because mm-hmm. both uh, Carol and Kathleen, you've touched on it, like the guy is making this money and the, the National League not making money. I think it's a shame. Like we didn't make money either when we and we were professional. Um, and I think it's a shame because women's football, we don't have psychologists in women's football. The clubs don't have them. There's a major lack of it. Um, but at the end of the day, we suffer the same. We're all the same in how we exactly, suffer with yeah. mental health. And yes, maybe it's worse because we don't have as much money as the guys or whatever. And I just think it's it's not difficult to educate players to give them something for when they finish, whether it's coaching badges, whether it's a course, something. And it's something that clubs don't seem to have much interest in. And I, I think it's so important for players to walk away from their career with something or to get involved with something afterwards to keep themselves busy and focused. Well, even I had something to keep myself focused, but it was more the transition of not knowing, like just losing that element of being kind of someone, I suppose. Like there's two different sides to it, like, yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think if, I just think if there's something to involve you, like for example, okay, 
this person's retired. Karen, you're retired. We're going to do something. What about if you wanted to get involved in coaching? Would you like that? Would you like to come in? Would you like just like something to keep people involved in the sport as well? Because you're right. I was the same. Well, I disappeared off the map for three years. Basically, I didn't speak to anybody in football. I didn't do any interviews. I didn't even want to watch football. And I just threw myself into study as well, Um, which kind of worked for me. But then I regret not continuing, not getting my A license, not keeping involved because it's really difficult to get back in once you've given yourself that break. Mm -hmm. So I just think somebody, it doesn't matter what age we are. I'm old enough. I'm bold enough as well. But I needed somebody to grab me and go, no, 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 you have to get stay involved. We're going to do this. We want you to stay involved because it is that feeling of want, Mm. isn't it? Like, and and being important and being useful. Um, but definitely didn't have anything like that, no, when we finished. It's interesting even hearing the two of you because that's Brian O'Driscoll has a documentary on at the moment, which is basically exactly what both of you were saying. And I did a panel with him recently and he was saying that he couldn't even watch rugby for like four years afterwards because it was just, he watched it for work occasionally if he had to do a panel or something, but just couldn't enjoy it. Just every time he was watching it, it just he was like watching someone covered in blood and mud and being like, ah, oh, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> Sorry, David, I cut across you there. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, like, I think, uh, like, everything you've highlighted there, like, your experience of it, I think I seen something with Brian O'Driscoll the other evening as well on the Late Late Show, you were speaking about it. I think from, like, one of the basic things that can be done, it doesn't need to be individual sports psychology support or mental health profession. It can be an education program while you're still a player. Um, and I know some players will think about at the time, oh, I don't need that. That's not for me. Retirement's five, six years away. I'm going to play for as long as possible. But I think the bringing back ex-professionals and normalizing, no, this is going to happen and developing a program. And it can be basic things like what skills have you learned as an athlete that can help you in whatever career you want to do afterwards, whether it's in sport as a coach, Maybe it's not. Maybe it's in business and moving into another area. How can you take what you've done as a an elite athlete and apply that into whatever you want to go into next? And if you think about the skills you've learned as elite athletes, well, you've learned to communicate with a coach, but a multidisciplinary team with your teammates. You've learned to lead them in different ways. You've learned to deal with setbacks. You've learned to set goals. You've learned to help a team set goals and implement behaviors and standards required to set goals and achieve them. You've learned to plan your career and you've learned to develop relationships with medias and sponsors. And that could be an area you can leverage then to potentially get work in a particular area. So I think there can be a, there's programs out there that have been developed that can be developed that don't take a huge amount of resources to implement and implement very well through simple educational workshops over time to help people take what they're already good at and just apply it in a different a different area. David, I was interesting in, interested in something you wrote, which is kind of similar to what you were just saying there, but I think you were writing specifically about the GA and you're saying that strength and conditioning in the GA now is 15 years ahead of where sports psychology is. I don't know, would you say the same for like football or even specifically like women's football in Ireland and what you've seen? Or would it yeah. be even further <laughs> back yeah. or forward? Um, I think from what I've seen is strength and 
conditioning coaches are in place. The coaching standards are improving and are, and are very good. Um, men and women's football, there is no sports psychology in Ireland from what I can see. And if it is a limited, limited level, just from my understanding, um, it could be, could be proven wrong on that. And I'm happy to be proven wrong. I think sports psychology in general in Ireland, whether it's GA, soccer, rugby, any of the sports, it can really be improved. Um, I think in the UK, WSL, academy teams as well, I think there are, with the ECCP, there's been a normalization of psychology, but I think they're really only getting to see the benefits of it now. So it does take time. Um, but I think there are simple programs that can be put in place every club in Ireland um, to to ultimately help young people and if they go on to play with Women's National League brilliant if they go on to the Senior Women's International team brilliant but ultimately there's a huge number of young boys and girls playing in football in Ireland um, if we just take the academies in the League of Ireland and Women's National League that if there were simple programs put in place they're developing life skills and that's a huge advert for um, for all of our clubs in Ireland in terms of developing young people that are going to contribute to, to communities all around the country. Emma, maybe when you're setting up your goalkeeping academy that we keep telling you you have to set up, you can be the world leader in sports psychology and the department that you develop no, in it so that Irish football doesn't have to ever worry about a goalkeeper again. <laughs> this is ringing home because my coach that I had at Arsenal for my whole career for 17 years I used to call him my psychologist. He was my coach as well. Like, but psychology first, coach in second, because as a goalkeeper, you really need it more than outfielders because, yeah. you know, there's more pressure on us, obviously. Um, but I just think in general in life, not just sports, mental health seems to come second. And I think more so in Ireland, we're just told to get up, brush yourself off and get on with it more than anything. And I think, you know, we talk about developing football and women's football in particular, getting it into schools, same with mental health, bring it into schools, start educating the kids, you know, to, to be more relaxed or to try and speak more freely about it. So I definitely think there's, um, it's definitely a, an all round thing that we need to improve on. Generally. Definitely. Like I've gone to counseling for years for sometimes for very specific things, other times just for my general mental health. And I know sometimes when I say to people, I just do it because I get a lift out of it. It makes me feel better. It makes me feel less anxious, whatever it might be. They're a bit like, you, there wasn't something traumatic that you're going for. No, there's not something massive that happened in your life that required you to do this. And I was like, no, it's just something that makes me feel good. I, I mean, I go to a checkup in the doctors every six months or whatever it is. I get my hair cut every six months. These are all things that you do to look after yourself and make yourself feel better. And I think you're totally right, Emma, in saying that, we looked at, I think sometimes maybe in a sporting context, it's almost, it's acceptable to do it when you're improve when you can see an improvement in your performance or it's very specific to something that's happening on the pitch. But if it's helping you off the pitch or if it's just helping you develop tools, we're less likely to encourage it and less likely to support it. I don't know, David, is that something, or Karen, something you feel? Yeah, just because David was saying that's why it's important for it to be in the club. So I think sometimes elite athletes, because you're used to being, you know, you're used to achievement when you come across or you're struggling, you, you see it as a weakness because you're not used to having it in a club, not used to talking about it. So it makes it harder to just be proactive and go and talk to someone. Um, so I know for myself, it would be, 
if I did have something bad happen or if I did get to a really bad place, that would be the only time where I'd be proactive about my mental health. And I think it does come from that almost embarrassment of not being as not being top, top of your game at something. So um, I do think it's important for it to be in clubs, like David said. Yeah, I think like there's so many young people around the country involved in sport and they may be reluctant or don't know how to access other services but if they're involved in their club and if they know there's a service available um, and even if only 10% of them engage with it well that could be 10% that really need that really need that support but when it's in a sporting context I think barriers already come down to a certain extent not fully because it's in sport and it's easier to have a conversation and identify things maybe if it's in a sporting context because they're going to their club whatever three two, three, four times a week. So it can be easier to break down those barriers if it's framed in a in the correct way. Well, David, I think that's probably a really good point to end this conversation on and encourage anyone who is listening to get that sports psychologist element into their club because it is really important. And like you say, it can help you on the pitch. It can help you off the pitch. It can make it can just help you as a person. And I think at the end of the day, that's the thing that's most important. Thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us. It's been great uh, chatting to you all and um, hopefully we can get the win next week. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> you have to do a big yeah as you say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and to also continue the bit of excitement we are still giving away money because we just like to do that we like to see Irish women's grassroots football supported so thanks to our partners at Cabri's we are giving away all the net profits for our most recent Cabri Roadshow in Vicar Street over the next few weeks we'll be giving you an opportunity to win 1000 worth of equipment for your local grassroots adult club for your club to be in a chance to win contact us with your club details and contact information at the pod at offtheball.com terms and conditions apply head over to otbsports.com for more was a great chat with David how did you guys find it I feel like the two of you were kind of listening to him and I could see both of your faces be like huh this is interesting we should have maybe had access to a bit more of this when we were in the elite setup but I know Karen you probably even feel like it now it's still playing <laughs> oh I definitely need it anyway I don't know um yeah no it's just it's interesting I think like you say we are getting more comfortable talking about mental health in general and it's definitely something that should be within sport and elite sport in particular um I know that you know people become so obsessed with their sport and then something like an injury can throw it or retirement, you know, it, it goes from a hundred to nothing and having the coping mechanisms for that is very important. And also when you're young, like you said, sport can be the be all and end all. And now even more so parents are seeing that their kids can make careers from it. And maybe there's added pressures there. And we spoke about um, Man City girls and the fallout of them being released from academies. So it's it's definitely a conversation that needs to be had more and more. Yeah, I mean, where was he when we needed him? Where was he? <laughs> I know. I was just thinking like all those times, I mean, you didn't have the same experience, but all those times you'd go to camp and I was in the stand. I made my first camp maybe when I was 18, didn't get a game until I was 23. And you'd just be told by the coaches, right, you're in the stand today. 
and you just pretend not to be devastated and go home and cry for like weeks. I know. And then people are trying to convince you to go and speak to the manager. And it's one of the hardest things to do, the isn't it? Like, then is just telling you what you're bad at. That's why you're not in the team. So yeah. that does or, not or seem worse. Worse, yeah. they don't say anything. They just give you like the the usual response, like "Oh, don't worry, you just need to train better." Yeah, blah blah blah. Work. Yeah, yeah, and that doesn't land either. I never so had it, Karen. Sorry, yeah, I know. Uh, I was always playing. So. <laughs> Easy life you had, Emma. I was in the trenches and the depths of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, we're talking about youth football, aren't we? And that report from City was about the academy, so youth football again, yeah. and about players being released, maybe not so sympathetically. Yeah. Um, but it is difficult. It, I mean, what is the best way to release a player and how much pressure are they under from people around them in their lives? Mm. You know, once you're wearing a, a, you know, a shirt, one of these big names, United City, Arsenal, whatever, it's, you know, you can hear your parents saying it to their, to their friends, to the neighbours. They're the ones that gloat about it. How much pressure are they under from their parents and from the, from the people around them? Yeah, that's why I course, think the education piece needs to go beyond just the kids because I'm seeing it more and more like even in our league the parents are going straight to coaches saying my daughter should be playing and things like that yeah and of course I mean we had one player with us at Arsenal and she was 16 or could be even Mm -hmm. 15 coming through and I'd never met a more confident person in my life she came into the dressing room bit of swag she was like talking to her I was like whoa yeah (laughs) Um, she was good but I didn't think she was that good but actually having spoken to her parents I could see where she was getting it from her parents were constantly moaning that she wasn't starting at 15 years old Mm. constantly moaning constantly saying this constantly and I just thought thank God I have parents that don't care where I am, <laughs> what I'm doing, <laughs> because my parents didn't know much about football and they weren't really bothered if I played football or not. None of my friends cared that much about football. And I know it sounds terrible, really, really. No one came to watch me, but actually it was so good for me because of balance in your yeah, life. In that moment, I, it was very intense. And then I go home to leak slip and nobody would care. They wouldn't even be speaking about it, which I really enjoyed. And it was mm-hmm. such a nice break from it. Um, but if you've got a family or if you're in that environment that it's just constant football, constant about your football, I can't even imagine going home after like making a mistake or letting in a terrible goal, which happened plenty of times. Um, and everybody talking to me about it, that would like stress me out terribly, so bad. Yeah, and if you didn't have the sports psychology where someone like David can teach you how to remove yourself from a situation or forget about those mistakes and it's just constant battering down the door. It's just, it's going to go in on you. Um, so even if your whole life is football within that football, there should be just that education on how to cope, I guess. Mm. Yeah. I found that really interesting. Just the emphasis on how it's not a one-off thing and it should be ingrained in clubs. And I think it was interesting, you know, Emma, you were making the point that it doesn't have to really be about money. You know, it's not that you're actually looking for something that's incredibly wide in scope. Like you can just put in a very general education like scheme or whatever it is. You can roll that out and at least that's the building blocks for anything future. And then if clubs want to build on it or if individuals want to build on it, you've already got all the basic resources, all the basic tools to help you and you 
you know, you're not starting from an absolute scratch when everything seems much more daunting if you're trying to go into it yourself or if you're trying to even get something started in a club by yourself. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying there is an added pressure if you're making so much money and then go from that to like zero. Obviously, that's a massive thing as well. But I just think because you've you're you've thrown yourself into something and I'm not just talking about sport, I'm talking about if you've put your whole life into something. I mean, every second of your day is about this. Um, you practi- you're practically live and breathe it. Obviously, you're making money from it. Uh, for seven, I'm talking about the older players now than when you retire. Um, for You could be up to 15, 20, 25 years you're doing that and then it all stops. No one calls you. No one texts you. No, you're not, nobody needs you anymore. It's like a huge impact, mental impact. And I just think if people don't have, as you say, a building block, if they haven't anything to walk away with, that must be absolutely crushing. I can't even imagine how that would feel because when I finished, I had done my badges. I had done a degree. I had lots of courses done because I knew I would be in trouble at the end of my career if I hadn't done it. And I still felt helpless and life-changing, soul-destroying. I still felt a little bit lost. And I can't even imagine a player coming away from football and having absolutely nothing. I just can't imagine how that must feel. Yeah, no, it must be intense. And I'm glad we had the conversation with David as well, because I feel like it's the sort of thing that <laughs> you have a little friend who's happy we had the conversation too. <laughs> he agrees. He agrees with me. <laughs> um, and to look at some of the football that is happening at the moment, obviously Vera Powell announced her World Cup squad on Friday. We got the sad news today that Jesu will not be able to make the playoff because of a knee injury she sustained at the weekend in West Ham's County Cup tie against London City Lionesses. Uh, I, there hasn't been any official word on how serious it is yet. She was stretchered off, so fingers crossed. I think everyone is hoping that it's not as bad as it initially looked. But how much of a miss is that going to be for us when it comes to the match? Because it's not only that we're missing Jesu, it's we're missing Jesu on top of quite a few other good players. And it's getting to that stage where you're like... One more player that comes injured or one more player who can't turn up and this is looking not all that good for us. So difficult, isn't it? On the build-up, like what do you do? Just stay in bed, players. You're not training for the yeah. next <laughs> No, I think it's a massive impact. I mean, we've we've said it before about Ireland being such a small nation and such a small pool of players to select from. We can't afford injuries, can we? And and first it was, well, Rusha, little John in a boot. I was like, mm, okay. Leanne Kernan, very bad injury. That was a big that was a big one for me because just to bring her on, even if she comes on as a sub, just to inject that energy and pace. And now Jessica Zhu, who was a starting player and who was doing so well here for West Ham. Um I think it's a massive, massive blow for us. I don't want to sound like a Debbie Downer coming and in, going into the game. We still have excellent players, and Kate McCabe is still yeah. <laughs> Katie and Denise is okay. okay. <laughs> She's okay. She, um, you have her wrapped in bubble wrap somewhere in your house, right? And she yeah, I have a little spell around her, a little bubble <laughs> spell around her. But you have to think of the positives as well. I mean, Nifa is back. She's been doing really well for Liverpool. Great, great addition. Um. 
so yeah, big. I think it's a big loss, but it, I don't think it's going to ruin our chances or anything no. like that. I just think it'll. Vera hasn't changed the team all that much. She might have to consider tinkering about around it. Maybe bringing Heather Payne on the, to a wing because I think maybe that whole right side might change. Um, Jamie Finn will probably have to go centre mid because Megan Connolly's still out. So there's just a bit of rejigging there. Um, so potentially a different striker. Uh, Kyra Caruso is back in. Could be looking at Lucy Quinn coming back into a starting lineup. So He's it's a bit of a headache. Him. But I mean, these are players who still have international experience. Yeah. Look, we'll um, try and be positive about it. But I do think that they they're losing a bit of creativity with Jess Sue, um, Rusha Little John out of the middle, and Megan Connolly's set piece deliveries from a left hand side. We know Katie can whip them in maybe from the other side, but um three important factors. It would be interesting to see we don't know who we're going to be up against. So maybe we will want just a a big defensive performance and we'll be looking no. to we no. might, we might. It doesn't matter if it's Scotland or Austria. No, no, we're not talking defensive here. No, we want to go and win. We can compete against these. Oh, I, I, think, we can. I think we have uh, as good of a squad as them and we definitely have better players individually. Yeah. So, no, no, we're not talking about defensive uh, formations. Well, no, we will be talking about defensive formations. <laughs> we've played kind of at the back every the single game. Backs. We will be talking about defensive formations. Can we get the fullbacks higher, please? Is it a three? Um, Is Megan, it a five? Megan Campbell, Megan Campbell scored at the weekend. She's got more game time under her belt, so there's a positive. Yeah, plus she made a mistake in, in the, the, the league. So that's always a good thing. Get your mistakes out for your club and then come in to the Irish team. And do we have any thoughts on whether it's going to be Scotland or Austria? I think the generally people were saying at the start it's going to be Austria. It seemed to be. I disagree. It, I disagree. I think that's it's going just to be because we saw them at the Euros, I guess. Mm. Yeah. I mean, just speaking to a couple of the Scottish girls as well, they're very, very confident. They have a full squad of fit players. Mm-hmm. Um they're really happy with their manager. It just seems to be a bit of a buzz at the moment. Everything just seems right, feels okay, feels right. And all of their players, every single one of their players are in form. They've got great, great players. Corsi's in form. Um, Emma Mukandi's playing really good football, even though Reading are at the bottom of the table. Erin Cuthbert is playing excellently. Um, who else have Stop they got? Stop praising them. You're going to scare us. <laughs> Now, don't worry. Next week, we'll absolutely dish them and I'll send the link to all the Scottish players. So I just, I don't know. I kind of fancy Scotland at the minute. And I want Scotland. I think it'll be a better atmosphere. occasion, yeah. I live near Scotland, so I can just drive up there. We can all have a bit of a party afterwards when we win. (laughs) Quite a tour. I think that has to happen if we're over in Hampton Park. Send us all over there. <laughs> if anyone wants the insightful commentary that we offer up every week, <laughs> we will have If, to if anyone go. wants to come over and join us for the party, yeah. come on. <laughs> uh, well, thank you both very, very much for today. And we will be back once again next week with all your women's football analysis. And as Emma says, we will be purposely thrilling whichever team we end up getting after the match this week. And and uh, putting it out into the universe that we really, really want to go to Australia and New Zealand and we don't want to have to wait to January to qualify. Thank you and see you all again next week. The Koi Gig Pod on OTB Sports in association with Cadbury. A player and a half deserves a glass and a half of support.